Hello, my name is Cameron Spencer, and welcome to the Great Design Lead Podcast. I'm a software engineer, and right now I'm building out a world-class next-generation order and fulfillment platform for GoPuff. Great. Thanks for having me on, Emily. Thanks for willing to hang out with me, too. This is really fun. I uh, uh, I want to quick address like how we first started talking, um, which is kind of funny. <laughs> I, <laughs> so I think that you showed up in like my LinkedIn algorithm because you're uh, uh, friends with, um, I'm guessing, uh, Tom and Audit from Lula, right? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I did the podcast with them. And then I think you may have interacted with something and it popped up saying, hey, do you want to be friends with this person? And then I saw in your your LinkedIn that you were a washed up Bollywood actor. (laughs) And I I was extremely confused because you're a white guy with red hair. So I was uh, I wanted to figure out what that was about. And I just cold messaged you saying what is going on? And then you answered me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what? I should have changed that before even doing this po- this podcast because uh, it wasn't actually Bollywood at all. <laughs> That's there for the marketing. Uh, it was a Mollywood film. The film was called mm. Captain. And so Captain is a movie about this soccer star in South India. I guess it was probably for the Indian uh, World Cup team. And he had a tra- tragic death. And so it was a whole movie around that. Um, and so it was a Mollywood movie. So South India, uh, I was traveling around, I guess there was Fort Kochi. Uh, and I had this, this really sketchy white beat up van pull up to me along the side of the road. And he said, Hey, Hey kids, this is me, my buddy Drew, who's from India and another friend of mine are beast. And he's not nearly of Indian descent at all either. And so they pull up to us <laughs> and they say, like, hey, do you want you want to be part of this movie? And we have no context whatsoever. Um, but naturally, we said, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and so he says, okay, well, grab three of your other buddies at the the hostel, and we'll come by at eleven p.m. And we're like, oh, like crap, like eleven p.m. at night, <laughs> like just it's getting worse and worse. I mean, the van is not appealing at all. And so we grab a couple people from the hostel. They pull over at 11 p.m. outside our hostel, like 30 minutes late. So it's getting even weirder. They promised us, what was it? It was like $15 in food or $15 in, in cash, um, unlimited food and a couple beers. And so naturally, we're like, heck yeah, like this is going to be a great once in a lifetime experience. We get in the van, they pull over to a beer shop, they give us some 40s and we get to the, the set and there's lights everywhere it's a soccer field they have like the hollywood bands where where the actors stand uh and it was it was completely legit and we're there till probably four in the morning we got all the food we could possibly eat um most of the the directors didn't speak english at all so while we're out there on the on the filming we had no direction at all they'd kind of point us where they wanted us and tell us where to, to go and we had to just follow and i remember one scene specifically uh, the actors BP something, and it was a scene of me, my one buddy, and this famous actor. He's got millions of people uh, following him on Instagram, and I was supposed to give them flags, and I gave them flags as part of a a post game ceremonial thing. And I shook 
the actor's hand and I remember everyone running towards me and whistling and saying no like don't don't do that and <laughs> it was it, overall it was just one of the wildest experiences of my life um but now now I use it as as my my LinkedIn pitch <laughs> if you will so I'm glad it worked on you at least <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of crazy that so like uh, all of these people were like, no, 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 you're not allowed to touch him. Like he's some sort of like golden yeah, I, person. Yeah, they had they had umbrellas over his head while it was raining and oh giving him food and everything the whole time. Yeah, very very wild experience. And I, I, I was one of two people that ended up making the cut into the actual film, <laughs> so I got my five seconds of fame. What were you doing in your five seconds of fame? Were you giving him the thing, or was it something else? Yeah, no, so I was giving him the flag, and I think there was a scene of me uh, in a newspaper. They, like, photoshopped us into the newspaper um, <laughs> of him winning the, the, the tournament or whatever it was. Oh, that's pretty cool. I gotta say, I, yeah. I've, I've seen uh, movies going on. They, they happen a lot uh, in Philly when they want, like, a New York-y uh scene but they don't want to pay for new york they could have could have philly and they have all these movie scenes and it's really cool um but uh but yeah so i i saw that you do a lot of travel uh and and that wasn't just like a one-off thing for you there were i i was going through your instagram and there were all of these different places so like before we get into anything i kind of just wanted to talk about that a little bit like what's what's going on (laughs) yeah sure uh i think that travel is a great great way to kind of open yourself up to different cultures and I love food personally and I think that's a great medium to kind of discuss life in general with with different people and uh, everywhere throughout the world everyone's habits and traditions are completely different and uh, so I really love to travel to first try all the food I can because I love I love the food Uh, but also experience their day-to-day lives in different countries. So post-graduation from Drexel, I went to Southeast Asia for three months. So I was hiking in the Himalayas, in Nepal. Uh, In India, we we got to experience Diwali and a couple other festivals. Uh, Went to the beaches of Thailand, uh, did Angkor Wat in Cambodia. What's and motorbike over Vietnam. So Angkor Wat's an old historic, gosh, I don't want to uh, claim a designation on them because I think that they kept going back and forth between Hindu and Muslim temples. Mm. Um, so I, I don't actually know where it originated, but they're, they're an old historic uh, temple, set of temples throughout uh, the, the city of Cambodia, or I guess wow. Simrap. Wow. That's that... beautiful. I the one picture that I thought was really really cool was I um there were these two boys that were like on a swing Did you yeah. know that? I thought that was like so crazy and and how did you get into this because you keep on saying we like did you have like a group of friends that you would travel with a lot that introduced you to these places or is it like throw a dart at a map like let's go yes yeah, so I'm gonna have to give a shout out to Drew on this because he came <laughs> up to me he was a friend of mine from Drexel he came up to me as I was graduating and said, hey, do you want to take three months off and just travel the world? And I was like, heck yeah, like, why not? <laughs> and up until that point, I don't think I, I had even left the, U- left the U.S. Um, so that was like a big step forward for me and a big commitment. 
And uh, so that picture that you're talking about in general, I, I brought my camera along and I, I don't do much photography anymore, but at the time I loved photography. And so I got this great picture of locals in Nepal. This was God, probably 10,000 feet up uh, in the mountains while we were hiking. And there was this swing that they had made and they were just, they would, geez, I don't know how to describe it. The one would like throw them up and they were getting really high on the swing. And so I, I snapped this one picture of them. Uh, they were both smiling and the one was hanging off the edge of it. It was a really great photo. Is that really dangerous? Oh, what yeah. they were doing? Yeah, that was probably the least <laughs> dangerous thing I did up there. <laughs> What would be one, one of the most? There, there was this Ferris wheel once. Um, this was probably halfway up. Uh, we we hiked the Annapurna base camp, which is just one of the mountain regions there. Uh, we were trying to hike the um, Everest base camp, but mm. to get there, you have to fly into the most dangerous airport in the world. So this airport's slanted downward. It has a short runway. There's no ground crew. And it's tucked in between these mountains, so it's constantly foggy. And so every every single day, we tried three days to go there, and we couldn't fly in. And so we chose the Annapurna Base Camp, which is actually arguably even more beautiful than uh, the, the Everest Base Camp. And so halfway up this mountain, we get to this point, and there's this big swinging, what looks like a Ferris wheel, but it's just made out of completely wood. And so we get there, and there's no motor at all. So the locals would grab onto uh, one of the, the higher up uh, uh, booths or whatever you want to call it and then start running and swing you. And so they would just, then just try to keep the momentum going. Um, it was really wild. And you got on that. Naturally. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So uh, th- there's that, but also uh, um curious what's with you and uh wanting to to hike and and everest is a a big deal so uh what what's that part of your life like it's totally (laughs) separate from everybody else i i find a lot of peace in hiking and this was probably the first time i've ever experienced in my lifetime of not being able to use my phone at all for gosh it was probably like five days uh so there's no signal no wi-fi um cold showers uh (laughs) it was it was a humbling experience we'd hike five to six or seven hours a day as you got up the mountain it was a little bit shorter because i think at the peak of annapurna it was 50 percent the oxygen concentration as down at sea level Uh, so it wasn't easy to hike up there at all and i have asthma in the first place so it was really difficult uh, but I find a lot of peace in hiking. Uh, you can't really do anything else but hike when you're hiking. You can have a conversation uh, and just be in the moment. And so that was one of my probably I look back on it. It's one of the, my favorite parts of my life uh, was hiking those five days where I had no cell reception. I was taking cold showers. I was talking to everyone else that was hiking along the way uh, because you'd stop at these gosh, I don't even know what you'd call them, like chateaus or uh, almost motels along the way, depending on where you stayed. And it would be all the other hikers uh, get together at that one hotel. And so there's little cities scattered along the way. 
And so you'd have to make it from one city to another. Um, and then sometimes along the way, there was like a small motel or house that you could stay at, but you get to the city, get to the hotel, and then you would just spend your whole time with some of the other hikers and get to talk about their lives. And it was hikers from all around the world. Is there something, so in, in my mind, uh, a lot of like the effort and work behind doing that, uh, I would imagine sucks. So <laughs> what is what is it uh, that is so rewarding about doing something that's that's so hard like that? Yeah, you know, it's that's I mean, I think part of it is exactly described. It's not the faint of heart. Um, in fact, I thought I was going to die at the top of Annapurna Base Camp. I I have a hard enough time taking in oxygen and as it as it is. And so being up there, I was like, oh, my gosh, like I was having a hard time breathing. Um, and I think there's something to to kind of pushing the limits that, you know, you, you don't know where you're going to you're going to end up without without or you, you don't know your true potential without actually pushing your limits. And so part of this was a relaxing experience. But the hikes of themselves were, you know, four plus hours of hiking every single day for 11 or 12 days. And so committing to that and then being able to accomplish it at the end of the day kind of feels great. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking for my next adventure like that, to be honest. So. <laughs> oh, so would you consider that as one of the most significant, um, time periods in your life in terms of, yeah, it was, it was opening. I don't know if it was significant in, in itself. Um, I realized I used my phone too much and relied <laughs> too much on it and wasn't, wasn't so much in the moment. And uh, but yeah, it was a it was a phenomenal time, and uh, I I want to do it again. So obviously, it made a huge impact on my life. Do you think that um, the Cameron uh, before that trip and the Cameron after that trip were two different people? I think I think the Cameron every single day is a different person. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I you know we're all constantly changing, and, and one thing I really try to emphasize in my own life is 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 taking everything I've learned from the previous day and trying to apply it immediately to the next day. Um, yeah. And whether that's me hiking up the Himalayas or just going to work and, and trying to learn from interacting with other people, I don't think it's any different, but I think certainly some of the, the lessons I learned from that trip are unique to that trip and unique to that experience. And I, I probably would have gotten it any other way. Yeah. Huh. So speaking of your, your travels, let's talk about like where you're from. So you went to, was it Conestoga High School? Yeah, outside of Philly? High School. Yeah, just the, outside of Philly. The only uh, connection I have to Conestoga is I, um, uh, in uh, freshman, sophomore year, I was on the Drexel crew team. And uh, uh, I would always see the uh, Conestoga boats going out with their high school teams. And they'd be so early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> i was yeah. like how is this even possible <laughs> yeah no i i i have much respect for for all crew members to wake up that early um yeah but it was it was a nice school um definitely prepared me phenomenally for 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 drexel yeah uh so you were you originally from outside of philly like you grew up there yeah, born and raised outside of Philly. Uh, my grandma had a house in Berwyn, where I, I'm actually right now, uh, and where I grew up most of my 
uh, life. I had one other place we stayed in Chesterbrook, mm. uh, which is just down the road, though. Yeah. So what I was it? stayed here the whole, my whole life. What was it like to grow up in your town? Like, were there any things that kind of uh, stuck out from, from your childhood of what it was like being there? Um, well, uh, I mean, I grew up, it's, it's very privileged. It was like, a, it's a really nice um, area. Uh, we used to have a saying where you'd, you'd be able to tell the, the teacher's lot from the student's lot because the student lot would have like Mercedes and BMWs. <laughs> um and so it was it that was actually a big surprise for me coming from my high school uh where it was there were almost no minorities um and to coming to Drexel and, and my freshman year roommate was uh Joseph Apea he was from Ghana he had never mm. been to the U.S. at all I love Joseph and he, he was one of my favorite <laughs> people and so that that stark contrast from going from um this this small subset of the general population that I had experience with uh, at my high school to to go into Drexel and experiencing all these different cultures different values different upbringings I thought was phenomenal and that's kind of part partially what led me to go travel abroad because uh, a lot of the people that I, I grew up with wouldn't even dare think about go to India or or mm-hmm. or put yourself in any of these weird uh different um, positions where where you might feel uncomfortable and so I kind of uh, grew up this way but I wanted to branch off and, and learn some of these other different things did you did you like growing up there um it was an experience and I mean I, I don't think I'd have it any other way um because I, I don't know any other way <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah uh, um when you were let's say like before before um high school because sometimes when you're in high school your mind is like so focused on what you want to do afterwards and thinking about I don't know all of this stuff when kind of before high school and like middle school elementary school what kind of things were were you interested in just naturally yeah I that's a that's a really good point I think throughout middle school and and high school and college I was really into sports I never actually, I guess I, I take that back. I, I played like an intramural basketball team and I was, I was the worst player on the team. <laughs> I, I, I think over five years I scored, I can tell you four times. And <laughs> the last time I scored in my fifth year, I called it quit. I said, I'm, I'm leaving while I'm on top. I'm not going to get another <laughs> point for the rest of the season statistically. Uh, and so I, I called it quits the next day, I believe. And so I, I really liked that growing up. I think I, I got to high school and I took a liking to computers and electronics, which kind of led me into my career at Drexel. And I think that all started from video games. I started playing Minecraft and Minecraft, you could kind of build things. I love that, that whole idea. And there's ideas and, and, uh, logic in the, the game where you can build circuits and things like that so that kind of drove me down an electrical engineering programming route and I got involved uh. in the video game design uh, class there and uh, it kind of just spurred from there I, I took a computer science class my senior year of high school uh, and and nearly failed it <laughs> so, <laughs> so shout out to Connor who was sitting next to me <laughs> and, and got me through that class I don't think I 
I think actually that class drove me from doing computer science, which I thought I wanted to do, which programming to doing computer engineering. So I, I took that class. I was like, Shh, this, this is hard. <laughs> and so <laughs> I then switched my degree going into Drexel from computer science to computer engineering. Um, mm. Can you tell, uh, can you tell me the difference of between those two kind of like what you learn in computer science, and computer engineering? Yeah, I'll try to give a brief overview. I, to my knowledge, I, I actually, so I only spent two weeks in computer engineering at Drexel <laughs> because the the first week they were giving you an intro of all the things, the whole class curriculum. And I get there and it says I have to take three, I think it was three different sets of science courses. So three chemistry, three physics, and three biology, essentially classes throughout my time at Drexel and I I I disdain science other than computer (laughs) science I disdain science and that I went directly to my guidance counselor after that that uh, class and I said hey you need to get me out of here that's when I went into computer science so computer science is programming Uh, at the end of the day um, sometimes you'll do you're like architect different software systems and uh, it could be anything from UI to databases where you store things to building out APIs, which is just a way to kind of connect the two, the front end and the, or the UI and the, the database. And mm-hmm. computer engineering is more involved in, see, this is where I kind of have a hazy knowledge between electrical engineering and computer engineering. I think computer engineering is more the hardware and potentially lower level programming. So building out operating systems and tools that work very well with the, the hardware. Mm, um, okay. So you, <clears throat> Apple does a very good job of this, um, building software around the hardware that they're providing in their machines. Uh, so I think that's sort of where that line is drawn. But I, a lot of my friends, even Joseph, uh, my freshman year roommate he was computer engineer but he's now a programmer so it's it's pretty interchangeable they, they take a lot of the same classes so so when you're talking about that when you're talking about apple an example would be um uh like ios like the creation of ios for their 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 machines yeah so i think the most recent example of that is apple has their new processor so they've completely disbanded Intel as their computer processing unit or chip uh, in their computers, mostly their laptops, I guess. And so they build their software specifically around this uh, core hardware piece in the computer. So they're able to optimize different, like how different applications are run to Mm. be more efficient than what the Intel chip was, because that was almost a black box to them. Hmm. Okay. And and like an example of an API for what you were talking about would be like, um, uh, I noticed that my only interaction with API so far has been having an interactive map on a um, uh, a website. So like the ability to connect that from, from uh, I guess, Google Maps or something like that to have it actually interactive within. So that would be a good example. Yeah, almost. I would say probably 80% of the things that you do on your phone and on 
the computer are interacting with an API. So when you go to a website, that's not just a, uh, actually, I think so bad example, but most of the, the, the websites that you design on your YouTube page are probably pretty static. So they don't change much. They don't use data from some storage. Uh, but if you go onto maps, like you were saying, uh, all to get all the data about uh, what what the map looks like, how to get you from point A to point B in directions, that's all being done. The computations are done on some server. So it doesn't have to be done on your own computer. Oh, okay. um, and that way they can provide it to anyone. Yeah. Got it. Uh, speaking of all these things that, that got you into like deciding what you want to do at Drexel and deciding that you even wanted to go to Drexel, I I saw your Skyrim mod from oh, yeah. forever ago. <laughs> And uh, so, like, for people that don't know what we're talking about, like, uh, uh, in, uh, in Skyrim, which I don't play, but my boyfriend plays, um, you can uh, make adjustments to it, and, and you can, and people make these mods, and I, kn- I knew that they existed, and I saw my friend, my boyfriend and his friends, like, ha- like, downloading mods and adding them and everything like that, but I kind of, like, didn't connect to the fact that somebody has to make that. <laughs> So this was, you were like, what, um, high school age, you were like 16, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Um, And I was playing Skyrim, and there's a point in the game where you go through the whole story, there's different cities, and you're essentially becoming the best, I don't even know what the analogy would be, like being like the best airbender or something, you're trying to be the best warrior in this whole nation, and so you go to each one of these cities, and you not conquer them but you meet with higher up people and defend the cities and things like that and there's this one city that gets completely obliterated by these dragons and i think at the time it happened to be my favorite city and past that point in the story the city never got rebuilt i was like i can't i (laughs) i can't do this Uh, and so (laughs) what i did was i went into the game and you can kind of just build the map yourself uh, around what it is in the game and so what i did was i replicated the so the way it got destroyed there was like rocks on top of buildings and the doors were just dysfunctional and not usable anymore and so i think what i did was i created the same house that they had and i just blew it up a little bit bigger so it hit all the other crap that was behind it uh, the destroyed oh. part of it and then relinked the door to the location and in doing so, it would completely revitalize the whole city and made it look like it, it was before that uh, point in the, the story. And it wouldn't affect the story at all, but it would just make the city reusable again. Because to me, I, I didn't understand why at all uh, they would completely wipe out that city. Um, and that actually became really popular. <laughs> I, can't, I don't know if you know offhand, but I think I had over, over 10,000 downloads and... Uh, it was like a 4.5 rating and, and hundreds of people liked it. It was really wild. I think I even at one point saw like a Reddit post on it. Oh, really? Like appreciation post, yeah. <laughs> I saw that it was uh, it was like the trading city within Skyrim. So it's, uh, why would they get rid of that? <laughs> I, it, was, it was one of the last missions and it destroyed the city. And, and at that point, I was just walking around and I, I couldn't stand to have it. <laughs> destroyed 
And so that, that was one of the cases where I built it out for myself. I thought, oh, wow, I'll just put it on the market. And it kind of blew up from there. So um, was that something that you did just for fun? Or were you able to monetize that? How, like, what did this, this do for you? No, I wasn't able to monetize it. I think I wasn't, I wasn't as savvy back then. <laughs> I, I should have thought about that. <laughs> but for me, it was just, it was just a hobby at the time. I think I was trying to build out different mods for Minecraft and a couple other games, but they were, I didn't know how to program at the time. And so that was severely limiting for all those other ones. Whereas this Skyrim mod editor, you could, essentially drag and drop and so I just used my creativity and it was easy to build out so yeah the, the the way that you would actually be able to do that I actually sent your your mod link to my two friends and I yeah. said I said my podcast guest made this how <laughs> 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 and uh and the response I got was very impressive and the other one was um okay so he probably did this he probably did that like this is the reason why he did that like I have thousands of hours in this game <laughs> and I went yep. through your the, the the comment section on that on that mod and all these people were thanking you some people were <laughs> asking for uh you to do other things and have you considered this and i'm like bro he's doing this for free <laughs> yeah at the time i was really overwhelmed by the feedback and i i think i, I for a while i i still get comments to this day actually it's really funny um i think i was on the comment section um six months ago and, and i had a, a comment from a month ago saying hey do you mind doing this that and the other thing but i really appreciate it and at the time, back when I first created it, I was so overwhelmed by all the messages. I think I responded to each one of them saying thank you or something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, kind of that was the first thing that I ever did that really blew up and I, I didn't know how to handle it. <laughs> and I, I noticed that like within the same two year span of you doing that, um, you also, how did you get involved in like Chrome? beta testing like how does that happen oh my when you're a kid <laughs> <laughs> that was another wild I keep forgetting I did all these these crazy things as a high schooler <laughs> uh that was there was a competition um the the current chrome operating system at the time wasn't available it was really just windows and ios and so I I saw the opportunity google was releasing their new operating system i'm like wow i want to be a tester i want to work at google google's the diamond standard of software development um and i think it would be really neat if i had this chromebook which was a beta model that chrome or that google had worked with some i don't know acer or some uh, laptop builder to to create and they put a beta version of their operating system on it and so I was trying, I was like entering raffles. I was doing a whole bunch of things that I was trying to get this, this beta unit to, to just play around with. And uh, I think at the time it was, you would just use it and give them feedback on it. And so I, I loved that idea and thought I could contribute a lot to it. And so <laughs> I uh, entered a bunch of these contests and one of them was, lucid charts so lucid charts i think was mm. it's a for those that don't know it's a um 
I mean, how, would you be able to describe it better? It's like a, it's like a diagramming software where you can create mind maps or process diagrams and you just point these arrows to the text boxes and build out a, a system or a design or anything you're really looking at. And they were, they had a competition where I think they were selecting the top 10 uses of their tool. Uh, and mm. these top 10 people would get Chromebooks. And I think it was both based on um, their uh, employees rating it and also the community rating it. And so they had this thing that was like transitions. And so what I did was I built this. Uh, it was, I don't know what it would be akin to, like a really old video game. But I had this man and he had like this gun and you could take him through these different adventures and he'd be shooting these villains or these, I think there were monsters that I had built out with their tool. I just created like a bunch of text boxes and kind of made like a, a block <laughs> monster out of it. And so you'd go through here and there is like a little bit of a story and you'd click buttons and say, Hey, I want to go down this path. And it's like, Oh, you encountered a monster. Like, where do you shoot mm. him? The, the head, the foot or the, the body. And you click that and the guy would shoot an arrow and using all these transitions and different things that they had. Uh, and I think I came in first place for that and they sent me the, <laughs> the Chromebook. Uh, so that's also out there somewhere. Um, and that Chromebook, I, nowadays it's actually worth thousands of dollars, I believe. And the, the model is called the CR48. And I, as a kid, destroyed the thing. And so, <laughs> not, not intentionally, but I was like opening it up. I hate, I, I shouldn't say I hated Chrome operating system at the time. It was really <laughs> bad and restrictive. And so what I did was I opened it up and they had some type of locking mechanism in the hardware to prevent you from uh, uh, loading another operating system on it. So I, I had to take this thing apart, in which case I, I destroyed it partially. And I removed that and was able to get into the operating system, remove it and install another operating system on it so I could use it because this was I don't think I had a laptop at the time. So I was like, oh, this is great. I can actually make this functional. That's, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> did, so did, did Lucidchart like have this just online or like, how did they, where did you find this? I think I was looking at the forum. There's like forums out there telling you, hey, this is the different contests and different ways you could get the Chromebook. And it just popped up one day and like, yeah, I can do this. I can do this better than everyone else and I'll, I'll get the prize. And uh, I, it was just a public contest that they had on their website and uh, it worked out. I think that one of the best examples of Lucidchart, do you remember those YouTube videos that they used to make about dogs? Uh, no, I, I haven't actually seen those. Oh my god. The marketing team at Lucidchart is hilarious. They like made meme videos for Lucidchart. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, right. I'll have to check they, them out. It was like the difference between a dog versus a doggo versus a puppers <laughs> versus <laughs> <laughs> and they used Lucidchart and it and it was like they had voiceovers. It was hilarious. So I could totally imagine the whole like adventure story happening with Lucidchart. And then at the end, they were like, maybe Lucidchart. And then end of the video. <laughs> That's so neat. But um, uh, yeah, so 
I had actually had a question about Chromebooks. I've been thinking about this for a while before we even like had this conversation. Um, I noticed that so like growing up in school, uh, all of the exams that I did, anything that was done on a computer um, in class was on a Chromebook. And uh, they would have these carts that they would bring in. And the best way I could describe it, it was like a a minimum viable product of a computer. <laughs> like 100%. it was it was small. It was um, uh, sometimes they didn't work and you had to go get another one. Uh, this is probably user error, but like half of them wouldn't be charged. <laughs> and like that was my interaction with Chromebooks. And then I saw that they started like making them really nice. And there were all these ads for them. And they were like, switch to Chromebook from Windows and Apple and stuff like that. And so do you think that it's kind of hard for them to go from like how a lot of American kids grew up using it as like the the crappy school computer yeah. to actually making it like your main computer when you're so used to these other uh, operating systems? Yeah, I don't know how they're, I honestly don't think they're even trying to hit that market. Although I guess recently they are, they have, geez, they have one Chromebook that I think is $1,400 or something. I, I haven't really followed them as they grew, um, but I assume that their initial push was simply for exactly what you're saying. That was like a, a, just an easy school Chromebook or, or something that, like a parent that just doesn't use anything but the browser would use and mm. one of the big limiting factors i think in the beginning was um well i think all this kind of got spurred by the cost of it so they were trying to undercut everyone and so in mm -hmm. doing so they used worse hardware and less memory like less storage and all that kind of led itself to only being used as a browser like you couldn't mm. even download i, I I remember there were files that I couldn't even download because they were just too big for the, the storage. And so by doing all that, they were, I think, restricted by uh, just like a profit margin on everything. And so they had to kind of make it around that and design it around the limitations that the, the, the bottom dollar would, would provide them. Mm. Um, so I think since they've, they've changed that model, but... I don't think that they're, I mean, no one in my circle has bought a Chromebook since know, <laughs> like five years ago. Because so. even like the way that they talk about it, I, I just, I see it kind of limiting. Like everything, it's like, I, I don't think I would ever see Apple saying switch to Apple. They'd be like, no, obviously we're the first choice. Yeah. <laughs> you have the chance to possibly have one of our products, not switch to us. <laughs> Yeah. I, just, I don't know why this bothers me so much <laughs> <laughs> no I, I i know where you're coming from i don't know i yeah i'm not sure <laughs> yeah so so you were um uh in this this part of your life you were doing uh all of the stuff outside of school you were taking some of these classes in in high school um kind of like uh what kind of time frame was it for you when you actually decided, okay, um, this is what I want to do in college. Like I kind of have an idea of like what I want to do after I'm done in this town. 
I don't think I had any idea going into college. <laughs> I think I picked Drexel because there were a couple of schools I was really interested in. Syracuse, mm. Rochester, or I don't, I don't actually remember. Or Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute. Um, they were all really good engineering. Uh, my strong th- suits in math and not science, but math. And so uh, <laughs> that kind of led me to, to all these engineering uh, different fields. And so I kind of wanted a school that had, at that point, I knew I wanted to study abroad um, and get out of this town. And so that was a big motivation for me looking at Drexel, Syracuse, mm-hmm. and Rensselaer schools that, that had strong um, study abroad pro- programs. And my SAT wasn't strong enough to, to get into, like, obviously, I wanted to go to like MIT and some of these other great schools. Uh, and so I, I picked, ended up falling on Drexel, which my dad went to. And I think mm. that was kind of part of it. Um, I love their co-op program. So what was your, um, before you got in, uh, what did you, what did you think about Drexel? Was, was co-op like such a big thing that you were like, oh, this is the co-op school? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that was 50% of the reason I went to Drexel. I think everything else was much smaller than that um i saw the value in um forcing me to do internships because <laughs> I, I think if I, I think if i didn't do it i don't i don't know if i would have done internships I, I definitely would not have gotten the quality uh co-op internships that I, I did at drexel uh so i think it was me forcing myself into a position where i'd have to do these internships to to graduate and and set me up for graduation yeah what uh something that's uh, always a fun memory to to bring up and people don't always remember it but um do you remember kind of the last few days before you went to college and what you were feeling oh I hated it I was having like panic attacks anxiety attacks really (laughs) I wasn't ready at all. No, I'm like a big home buddy. Um, it's not very far away from home, but this is the first time I was leaving home. I was in Myers for those that know, uh, which Oof. is one of, yeah, yeah <laughs> that was my reaction. So uh, I was, I had a first floor room there. It was, and I was part of the business entrepreneurship community there because each mm. one of the floors there had their own community. And for whatever freaking reason, I didn't get put in the the engineering science one. And so I was like, well, this is going to suck because it's just me and my roommate. We're the only ones that aren't part of this community. Mm. And uh, I remember like all the, I think there are the stipulation. So each one of these communities were given money from their respected colleges. And I think those, that money was required to only be spent on people in that college. So whenever they had events and stuff, me and my roommate weren't allowed. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, it was really wild. So we were really silent there. But I mean, other than that, my first year was actually my first year was a, a dumpster fire. I <laughs> my first my my first term. I and like prefacing this, I didn't go out and I didn't drink every night and I wasn't a partier. Um. I'm not going to incriminate myself. I wasn't like a, a saint, but 
I, I, I would hang out one, one Saturday every single week with my friends. And I, my first term I got, I ended up with a 1.67 GPA, which oh. is worse than anyone I've ever talked to ever. <laughs> and I, I got put on academic probation. Um, I was, I had to take a class with all these other delinquents that, that got <laughs> below a two. And I had a meeting with not even my guidance counselor. It was supposed to be with my guidance counselor, but I don't think she wanted to see me. And so I had a meeting with this other guidance counselor and she ripped into me. She's like, you're going to, like, if you do this again, you're going to get kicked out of Drexel. Oh my God. Like, you can't do this. Like you get below two, you're gone the next term. She's like, you're going to lose all your uh, academic um, money that you got. Yeah. Scholarships. Yeah. And so that was like, that was a low point in my career. <laughs> and so, but, but after wow. that, it was smooth sailing. I, but I was, I was horrified. I was like, holy shit. Like I, I can't pass a, my freshman year term. And I expect to have to go through this four more years and it's going to be horrible, but. What was um, going on in your life at that point? Nothing. I, I, I think I, so all throughout high school, I was told that like they're preparing me perfectly for, for college and it was going to be the same exact work, if not less. And so I think I went into college thinking that same um, idea. And I guess I just didn't really study much for, for class. Part of the issue was, like I said earlier, I went from computer engineering to computer science halfway through my first term or not even halfway, two weeks into my first term. So part of that was dropping one of the classes and picking up a computer science class. So the problem with Drexel, it's 10 week terms. And so I get into the computer science class the second week and the third week we have one of our three midterms. And so I took the midterm and I got a 50 on it or 40 on it. And oh. I, I hated that midterm because it was just history on computer science. So like who created this computer, who built the first programming language. Uh, and What's that was the point? Sour taste. Yeah. And so I immediately dropped that class. Uh, and then I proceeded to fail chemistry and I failed Calc 1, which I had taken in high school. <laughs> so I don't know why <laughs> I, I, I failed that as well. And so the only classes I passed were English and University 101. And yeah. it was not a good start. <laughs> <laughs> I I can tell you that um, uh, in my freshman year, probably the most traumatic thing that happened to me was um, uh, I I don't know why, but one term I I, I thought that I, I needed to learn how to program, and that was the only way that I would make money and be successful in life. Sure. I, I, <laughs> and so I, I, um, took this, uh, this class that was like, um, it was, I think it was, com com uh, it's like one of the first computer science classes or program programming one, I think. And, um, I would, I, I couldn't do it. Like I, I had so much going on with crew. I had so much going on with my other classes. I just like, I don't know why I took it. It was just way too much. And I got to a point 
it wasn't an exam that that was the issue or anything like that. I I did fail those. Um, <laughs> but uh, this this kid in my class was offering me help in in our uh, our labs, and then I was having issues with the homework. And I reached out to him. I'm like, "How do you do this?" I looked at it like it was a math problem. Like there was only one answer. And he said, "Oh, here's here's the code. This is how you do it." And then I put that in, and then we got in trouble because our code was the same idiot obviously like <laughs> i don't know what i was thinking and um this woman uh the the teacher messaged me on on the email but it was like i ha- didn't really use the email yet i wasn't like so i didn't see it and then uh later on she's like by the way like this is going on your your uh your record like this yeah. is a whole big this thing is happening and I remember like thinking it was the end of the world. I thought I was going to lose my scholarship. I thought I was going to lose everything. I thought I was going to get kicked out of school, out of the honors program, everything. I remember like crying in my dorm room, thinking my whole life was over. Meanwhile, it was like one class. That if I failed, it's not the end of the world. But I thought it was the absolute end of the world. And then I just like fucked up my whole life. And it was so horrible. <laughs> so I, I totally remember what that felt like and so I can only imagine what what that felt like for you it was like it was like the worst feeling I could have yeah that that's what happened to me (laughs) yeah no it's it's a horrible feeling I but I mean while we're on it I so I ended up graduating with a three point I doubled my my first term GPA when I graduated and so I ended with a 3.6 I think it was 3.67 doesn't, doesn't even matter anymore or 3.37 <laughs> and um so part of so I want I'm not like the smartest cookie but like I I was like gaming the system in a way so <laughs> at Drexel what you could do was you could take up to so to graduate I think it was like 180 credits or something like that so I could take 80 or half of those credits uh, at a community college or an equivalent college that they accredited. And what you could do is get a bare minimum of a C and then those credits would transfer. And the cool thing about all that is that the the credits weren't that got transferred weren't used in the calculations for your GPA. Ah. And yeah. And so what I would do is I took probably 40 credits 40 to 50 credits at uh and all my science classes so I took all my science classes here at a local community college and what I did was I got the bare minimum of C so I did bare minimum work for that um passed. I, I don't I passed <laughs> the, the, exactly the credits transferred uh they didn't count towards my GPA so I took all my easy classes at Drexel and so wow. my credit utilization was very low for that. So whenever I got an A in any of these other easy classes, it would jump my my GPA like double or something like that. And so that's like part of how I gained it. And um, I'm trying to think, I did a couple other really wild things while I was there to, to get my GPA up. Uh, but that was just one of them. Where did you get the idea to do that? I I, I don't even know. I, I think <laughs> this probably goes back to how I found found all these high school things. I just, I like didn't want to, not that I didn't want to put in the effort, but I wanted to do it with the, the least path of resistance. Because at the time, I, 
I was trying to start my own business and a mm. whole bunch of other things. So I was trying to do it all least a path resistance. I like, I'm, I know I'm smart and I'll just get these subjects and I just need to graduate with an okay GPA that I can take to other, to other schools. And it's like, why, why in the heck would I ever need to learn chemistry to program um, unless I was doing something very specific for that. So I didn't care at all for that. I, I cared very much for my computer science classes, but for those other ones, I, I didn't care at all. And so I just wanted to do minimum viable stuff and make make my my grade look good and so that was one of the paths I took and um as part of that whole debacle I was now down three classes that I had to make up in the short term at Drexel oh wow and so at Drexel you're you're packed with 16 to 18 credits every single term till you graduate um and I was actually able to graduate in four years after all this and so as part of that, most Drexel students don't realize that they can drop their last co-op. So wow. I don't know. I did, yeah. So as part of all this, I did two co-ops. And actually, my second co-op was at an Amazon company. And mm. at that time, I had a 2.5 GPA. So a lot of people would say you, you, you don't or you need a really good GPA to, to get into these really uh, big uh, conglomerates in, in, in software engineering and I think at the time I didn't even have my GPA and then didn't ask for it. And so I, <laughs> I was working at Amazon with a 2.5 GPA. Um, or, yeah, it was nuts. And so after that, I felt like I had a really strong resume and I could take that into the um, workforce and be fine. And so I didn't want to pay the extra year at Drexel. And so I went to my counselor and I tried to get them to switch it so I could go intern or co-op back at uh Amazon, but they wouldn't let me do that. And so I said, Hey, like, screw it. Like just drop my last co-op. I don't want to do it. And I spoke with Amazon outside of uh, Drexel and said, Hey, would you take me as an intern for the, the year that I graduate? And I didn't tell them I was graduated oh. at the time. So I don't know if they even knew I had graduated <laughs> at that point. <laughs> um, so everyone I, I interned with were still in school and I was just the weird guy that had graduated. And was still interning, <laughs> but I, I did that specifically so I could travel with my buddy Drew at that point. Um, uh, and Drew, uh, Drew actually had a similar upbringing to me. He he failed a couple classes, and I met him at the local community college that I was taking the credits at. So that's kind of how that whole story started. Drew, go to Drexel or different school? Drexel. So you both were doing this this like sneaky thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he, <laughs> I wasn't the only one, I promise. That is hilarious. Uh the so I have this this one thing that I did uh to sneak around the Drexel system that I was extremely proud of, but now I see yours and I'm like, oh, it's not as what, not what as cool. <laughs> I I so what I did was so you know how you have the dining dollars, right? Uh, yeah. like the, the not the dining dollars, the the, the meal swipe cards. And they're like $20 each or like $15 each, which is crazy because I would be getting like a smoothie or a sandwich for like $15, $20. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And one of my friends, um, she was doing like uh, the meal plan and everything like that. And she was just getting so sick. I don't know if it was her or if it was the food, but she was like, just getting so sick. And then she messaged Drexel and they were, she was like, hey, um, I... Uh, can't use your thing because it's making me sick and I actually had to go home because I was so sick and my family had to take care of me can you transfer this to um, 
the the dollars like can i just convert all my meal swipes to dollars uh and so what she did is she just had pretty much like a, a black card to use at the the um north side uh That's little awesome. thing and so she told me about that and then uh, she said she was an athlete and that's why she, she needed it and because she was sick. And so I messaged them. I'm like, hey, I'm an athlete. Um, I don't have time after practice. And it's like really important to me to have good nutrition. Can we, I don't want the money back, but can I just like transfer it to uh, uh, like a, a debit card for, for the, um, the awesome. store? I I had thousands and thousands of dollars in Drexel food money and so wow. what I did was over over um months I would go to the north side and just wipe it out of everything that was non-perishable soap uh pasta all of this kind of stuff and then i would store it in my room and my mom would come with a minivan and we would fill up the whole minivan (laughs) and i haven't had to buy soap or like tide pods for like four and a half years (laughs) that's amazing i was so (laughs) proud of myself (laughs) so there are ways to to get around the system you just gotta talk to people and figure it out yeah, yeah, I think I think the key to this whole thing is you're never going to get anything you don't ask for. <laughs> so <all you've> asked, <laughs> the worst thing they'll say is no. Absolutely. And uh, um, like since we were talking about this, um, one thing that was a big, big thing when I graduated was uh, how much all of these things that mattered to you in college don't matter at all when you graduate. Like, I wish I... I there's a, uh, there's this thought in my I, mind that a lot of uh, um, my college professors would invite their students back um, to give talks or like to answer questions and stuff like that. And I there's a part of me that just like hopes that they don't do that to me because <laughs> I feel like I would just like take it all over and say nothing matters. <laughs> Like just do I, cool projects, like meet people, like you're being in the honors program, like your GPA does not matter to anybody, like <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Like, did you have a similar thought when you graduated and what, what you're thinking now? Uh, one one thousand percent. And <laughs> and funny enough, I get invited back by, by uh there's this one professor that I love, Rosemary Reese. Mm. He was a communications major professor and she invites me back to all these different uh to to go speak to her classes because she thinks I have the craziest resume and experience and so I would always come there and try to teach or to to to, to unlearn everything that the students had said and I'll I'll tell them all these horrible things that I did be like like it, it, it ends here like you don't tell anyone that I told you this and Rosemary's like clapping in the background she's like don't worry <laughs> like you do you and so I, I've come back probably to, to talk to three or four of her classes. I even did a, a, a communications uh, specific event for Drexel. It was their communications uh, major has a, a body to them. And I went to speak on behalf of them uh, with three or four other uh, panel members. And I was the only one that wasn't a communications major there. And I feel like I was the one spewing like BS and, not BS, but I was telling it. I was telling everyone how it was, and you could see the professors in the back just like looking at each other. Like, oh my God, don't tell them that. Um, but I, don't I tell them what? agree. 
oh like GPA doesn't matter and like <laughs> like you need to focus on what you like focus on things that are are meaningful to you you know make sure your GPA is not below two and you're not you're not getting failing out um but I would tell them all, all the different tricks that I use to get my GPA higher um <laughs> without without doing much effort and things like that I think that like after graduating I, I to me, the most important things um, aren't, aren't like I graduated from the honors program that that did nothing for me. Nobody knows. Is it like I don't even put it on my resume like I, mm-hmm. I in my mind, it was like such a big deal and people would notice me and it, it didn't. Um, and uh, but the things that matter to me most are um, like making genuine friends who know what you do for a living like it yep. doesn't have they just they can understand it they don't have to do the same thing so make, genuine friends are really really important um doing like side projects and things that you actually enjoy somebody gave me the advice one time that said like hey like there might be this whole list of things of all these side things that you can do all of these social media things you can do to talk about what you do only do the things that you actually like like, I feel like so many people spend so much energy on things that, that other people say are important. Like, some people come up to me and they're like, oh, my gosh, you need to be on Twitter. You need to da-da-da. You're not going to be successful unless you do this. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. So I wouldn't be good at it anyway. So I don't. Yeah. So, like, it seems like to me, those are, like, the more important things of, like, making a lot of friends and uh, working really hard to show people what you can do because, that's going to matter more than you handing them a sheet of paper saying like, this is what I did four years ago at a school. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there's actually like a whole list that I usually go over in front of these classes and talk about. And the two most important things are exactly what you said, network with as many people as you, you can while you're in Drexel because it's a unique opportunity or any school. It's a unique opportunity where you're surrounded by people that are not in your major have different interests as you and if you don't make the connections now like I can tell you as someone who's been in the workforce for five years it's it's very hard to make these these connections that you otherwise would have um, Mm. outside of school and on top of that you know you don't know the person next to you in English is going to go on to do something crazy and you know just having their contact and being good friends with them can can really lead you down a great path but but also uh, to your other point, uh, which I'm now forgetting. Um, <laughs> oh, le- uh, uh, making friends and also oh, side uh, projects, side things. Yeah, yeah. No, I think side projects are are very important. And I think, and my third point is, I think you you need to have a personality. So when you, mm-hmm. you do go to do what you want, do it your way, show your personality. So my biggest takeaway is from. I was just interviewing recently and right before I I graduated, uh, I have on my resume two bullets that are what I call my personality bullets and they're at the bottom of my resume. And one of them is I uh, did at at Audible, the the one company I co-opt with, I would do their monthly wing eating competition. Wing? wing Like buffalo wing? Like Buffalo Wings, yeah. And so I have, yeah, Audible Buffalo Wing Eating Comp Champion or something. I kind of <laughs> guessed it. And in parentheses, I put 10 plus 5 dunks. 
And that's my favorite line of my resume because it's just mysterious and you don't know what the 10 plus five dunk means. You assume it means wings, but so every single interview I've had since putting that on my resume, people ask me about it. Huh. Yeah. And it's the first, it's usually the first thing they'll ask me about. And I think it's twofold. It shows that a, I interact with my coworkers past the time. I'm like, I'm cordial and good for the culture. And then two, like, what the hell is this person doing? Like, <laughs> like who puts this on the resume? And so the, the 10 wings are just normal Buffalo wings. And then the five dunk is in the beginning, they, they put five wings aside into this really hot sauce and they let them sit in there. So they're all gross and disgusting and dripping and wet. And so you have to clear these bones. Yeah. So <laughs> you were like also, doing... I also... Yeah. Uh, also, I have um, right below that is my my Bollywood acting career. <laughs> I, put, put, I'm, I say, hey, I'm I'm an actor at this in this one movie in in India, and that that I it's like a gold star. Actually, I got the job at GoPuff because I had that on my resume. So I was referring wow. someone the other day, or like two years ago, and I got to talking with the, re- the referrer. Um, and this is one of my favorite things when I refer people because I get to talk to the the hr person and i'll like connect with them afterwards and he's like oh yeah like what do you do and i was telling that i'm like oh, i just got back from india i was doing like a movie abroad and <laughs> when i was when i was applying to GoPuff, uh, apparently this guy had switched jobs and now he works as a recruiter at GoPuff, frank huh. and he the only reason i got the interview because my resume was i guess at the time they thought i was a software engineer uh one so they weren't hiring those engineers at that point but frank saw my resume he's like oh my gosh this is the uh this is the bollywood star like i need to talk to this guy again and so he called me up he's like hey like we're we're, we don't technically have a position for you but i want you to interview and see how it goes and i ended up getting a software engineer two position from that because uh, frank just knew who i was and because i had this wild thing on my resume um but but another another point that you had was the side project and I think that's really key like just having something you're really passionate about uh for me I started two businesses while I was at at Drexel um and I always kind of knew I wanted to go the entrepreneurship route uh I think my long-term goal is to own a coffee shop before I pass and really so yeah part of that is learning how to run my own business and so I built a website design and development company at Drexel to start learning that. And without that, I wouldn't have gotten to where I am now. So I think those three things, having a personality, doing side projects and making connections are the three, three most important things you can do at at Drexel. And every time I go back to talk to the class, those are the three bullets that I like to emphasize. I wish that people actually told that to people in in yeah. college like why do we always have to figure it out afterwards yeah i i 100% <laughs> agree so i i spent way less of my time on the academic side of it clearly and, <laughs> and and more of it getting to know people and i think that was super beneficial for me in the long run yeah absolutely and um wh- one thing that i think you might get a kick out of which i'll, I'll send you later um, yeah. so, uh, there, there was this show uh, on the radio called, uh, car talk. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I have heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you hear about, um, somebody sent us a, a, a college application? I don't, it's starting to ring a bell. So this, this guy no. sent a college application 
And he um, went on for pages and pages about all of the things that he's done in life, which were yeah. all, it was not true, but uh, all of the things he's done in life uh, before college. I, I, I wish I could hear we actually, I might be able to find it. I'm just going to take uh, one minute to try to find it. If I can't, I'll give up on it. Um, car talk uh, college essay. Oh, there it is. Okay. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, the NYU letter. Okay, so he applied to this. Um, uh, okay, so I'm just going to read a little part of it. Uh, and I think it, it's really funny. So um, uh, he applied to NYU. This is an actual essay written by a college application applicant to NYU. The author was accepted and is now attending NYU. And it starts. I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I have been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in areas of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write award-winning operas, and I manage time effectively. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed. I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I am an expert in stucco. I am a veteran in love and an outlaw in Peru. Using only a hoe and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a horde of ferocious army ants. I play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. I am a subject of numerous documentaries, and when I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I enjoy hang gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electric appliances free of charge. (laughs) Oh, it's actually not that long. So if you might, I'll read the whole thing. Yeah. I am an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Uh, Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I am a uh, (laughs) private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. I have been a number caller nine and have won the weekend passes. Last summer, I toured New Jersey with a traveling uh, demonstration. I bat 400. My floral arrangements have earned me fame in international circles. Children trust me. (laughs) I hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still have the time to refurbish uh, an entire dining room that evening. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I have performed several covert operations with the CIA. I sleep once a week. When I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. (laughs) 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 While on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who seized a small bakery. The law of physics do not apply to me. I balance, I weave, I dodge, I frolic, and my bills are all paid. On weekends, I let off steam. I participate in full contact origami. Years ago, I discovered the meaning of life and forgot to write it down. I have made extraordinary four-course meals using only a mouli and a toaster oven. I bred, I breed prize-winning, prize-winning clams. I have lost bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. And last, last sentence. I have played Hamlet. I have performed open heart surgery, and I have spoken to Elvis. 
but I have not yet gone to college. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what made me think of that when it came to your personality. <laughs> no, I think that's that, that's phenomenal. <laughs> Sorry that that took so long, but I did ever I I listened to it when I was like thirteen, and it always stuck out to me. <laughs> yeah, I think I whatever you have to do to be unique in life I think it really helps you in the long run so for I guess I've been a GoPuff for eight months now but when I was interviewing at all the places um back in April or July whenever that was I had the thickest mustache and I thought that was going to be my key <laughs> differentiator in the interviews because I, I think I'm like well there's 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 no way that if these guys girl women um interview like two or three people every single day or week how do they remember everyone's name so I mm. figured if they don't remember my name they'll at least call me the mustache person <laughs> and so that was like one differentiator I had I think going to all these interviews I love I love interviews personally I think they're so fun it's just like a back and forth and my one of my key takeaways is I try to connect with the interviewer and I try to not do the interview so the mm. more I can not do the interview <laughs> the more we talk the more we connect and the more they like me uh, as a person and someone that they want to work with and I think that really helps and, and obviously there's there's moments where I have to do the interview but I, I think that really plays back and forth and I, I remember one interview recently in particular and this all kind of comes back to the personality thing and I going into it I was like well I'm gonna try my best like if it doesn't come across well you know I don't want to work there and this this one uh, woman was giving me questions and it was like what is a atomic function or something crazy like that in computer science and I'm okay. and she gives me at least 50 of these and more than half of them I say I have no clue what you just said like I've never heard of this before <laughs> and I think she even sprinkled in a couple fake ones in there but I just kept saying, like, I, she's, she just says, give me the first word or phrases or, or sentence that come to mind. And I think I only answered 10, 10 to 20 of them. And I ended up getting the job offer. <laughs> wow. But, but I think, yeah, I think really showing your personality and, and, and being yourself, not just in interviews, but in life really, really gets you farther because I think people can see through fakeness and, and, at the, at the end of the day that no one else can beat you like you and so I think that's kind of Absolutely. and so that essay itself kind of symbolizes <laughs> his his humor and, and his his it's like an intellectual in a way too because it's it's just so smart that and like it's witty who who applies to college and makes up all these different fake things <laughs> uh to probably their dream school like this is likely his dream school you probably knew you wouldn't get in otherwise or potentially didn't have the ability to get in if you wrote a normal essay and he just wanted to stand out be unique and <laughs> I think that's so fun that that essay that he wrote my favorite line was uh I only sleep once a week and when I sleep I sleep in a chair, in a chair? <laughs> all I could think of was it was it's the most interesting man in the world that does that these commercials yeah and um uh, when it when it comes to this, uh, when I graduated from school, I was um, 
very set on like finding a job and and like uh being I was still in the, the school mindset of like uh forming into whatever shape this professor wanted me to be in order to get a grade or, or not I I had very little practice like actually being myself um mm-hmm. and then uh once I um decided like hey um, all of these jobs I'm applying to say I don't have enough experience. What if I create my own experience and I just start freelancing and I, I have my own company? And so I got that um, that put together and I started doing that. And I can't tell you like the amount of just um, this, this this like mask or like this thing that was on top of me just like just left when I started interacting people with people in a way that I genuinely wanted to. And I I wasn't trying to get something out of it. I wasn't trying to get them to like me. And it just, it was just so much better. And I I, I felt like there was way less energy that was going into um, pretending to be something else. Yep. And y- you you don't have to remember what you said if you're being 100% honest. And, and you don't have to worry about being consistent if you're just always being yourself. And it just... Or- it it gives me so much just time to just do other stuff and put energy in other things than pretending to be this person that I think you might want me to be. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. How, what, so tell me, tell me about starting your own business. I, I've <laughs> done that twice now and uh, it, it's both the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and the most rewarding and there's challenges every single day around it. Yeah. So um, I, I, uh, I credit my aunt for, um, there was this big, uh, um, architecture company that needed a website done and, uh, they reached out to her and said, Hey, do you know anybody? And so she said, yeah, Emily can do it. And I was like, oh, I can't. Okay. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I said, okay, well the, the parts that I, I don't know how to do, I'll just like, uh, I'll hire a developer to do, I can design all the web pages and everything. And so, um, I said, yeah, sure. And then I realized I'm like, oh, this is a considerable amount of money. I probably have to pay taxes on this. <laughs> and so then I met with a, a lawyer and an accountant and they were like, okay, this is what you need to do. This is how much it's going to cost. And I'm like, okay, here you go. And um, uh, they got me set up every, all, all of the forms and everything. I had to give them like every document possible under the sun. And um, yeah, so that, that was put together. And then um, in the, the meantime of, of, being able to give the wireframes to the developer so he knows what he's committing to and all of that kind of stuff. Um, in the meantime, I was learning Webflow um, and I got super into that. And by the time I got the quote from the developer to do it in WordPress, um, I looked at it and I was like, wow, okay, um, I think I could do this. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I pitched um, on, on objective, even ground to the client, you could do it this way with WordPress, these are the, uh, this is the limitations and the benefits of it. And this is uh, Webflow. And they went with Webflow because they really like the animation ability. And I was like, okay. And so it just kept on going from there, just getting more clients. And then through the podcast, I was meeting more people doing more work. And then uh, I ended up getting a, a full-time job um, with MetLife from a recommendation from a, a podcast guest, which was incredible. Um, and so now I work full time and I have freelancing on the side. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's me. And so who knows if I'll do one hundred percent or the other hundred percent, but right now I really, I really like both, but I saw that you have 
uh, you started your own business too, and you had other people involved with it, which makes it like even more uh, involved in everything like that. And I actually went on your um, uh, your website and I did the whole form thing. I don't know if you got an email oh, from you? that. <laughs> Just I wanted to see how it worked and like uh, uh, this whole AI thing. So like that that's that's me. But like tell tell me about about you. Yeah, yeah, no, that I think so. That 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 company, Vitrus, uh, I had stepped back from uh, earlier this year to get the job at GoPuff. Um, the the majority of our our clients are were, were and are uh, small service based companies, so we really wanted to put a lot of our effort into uh, helping out what we thought was like an underprivileged um, subset of businesses in the U S and that came from small businesses. So all these large businesses can put billions and millions of dollars towards their website, their advertising and all that kind of wrap it all up in, with a nice bow and, and make it presentable and beautiful and get new clients. But this is, this is not something that small businesses could do. You know, we were working with people that had budgets of, hundred dollars a month to do ads and mm. so we had to do creative things and we built the software to connect uh, the websites that we would build for them on our own platform with advertising remarketing email and text campaigns and kind of wrap it all up and 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 bring bring the customer to, to focus for each one of these businesses so they'd be able to see how they're interacting with the website uh, if they started filling out a form but didn't uh, who it was, how many times they've been to the website, have they received texts. And it, it was just, we presented it in one long timeline for these small businesses, because for each one of these small businesses, each one of their customers, every single one of them is so important to them uh, that we wanted to bubble that up and make that the focus of our platform to kind of enable and empower these small businesses and these entrepreneurs that were um, otherwise have a million other things to do. So they can't keep track of their customer. Uh, they can't use Wix and cross correlate that with Google ads and their text marketing campaign and their email marketing campaign from MailChimp. And so we wanted to wrap that all up under one uh, platform and make it easy for them. And, and at the end of the day, we were customers. Customers are what makes small businesses. And so we led with that focus and we tried to push that narrative and that agenda uh, when we were building out the software. So it's kind of like a suite of different tools, um, but but wrapped under each customer. Uh, and at the end of the day, our, our mission was that entrepreneurship could empower and um, cause generational change. And so we mm. wanted to help these small businesses get to the point where they're the larger businesses um, to the point where they could get off our platform and start doing all these things themselves. And so after... Rexel, I had a full-time offer with Capital One and I instead turned that down and started wow. working with my buddy Jack uh, full-time for no money <laughs> <laughs> and for geez, it was probably two years two or two and a half years um, we worked on this platform and then COVID hit unfortunately we, we couldn't carry on without uh, getting new clients and that was an issue at the time um, but we we grew it from zero customers to gosh we probably hit 
we're at 120 plus and uh it was truly an experience and i had some of the hardest nights of my life and some of the most rewarding nights um hitting a big client big contract and uh, at the end of the day having emails back from our, our customers saying hey you really helped us out here here and here uh was just I don't know. It's not, it's not measurable um, how, how happy you feel. And I'm, I'm sure you've had similar things when, when clients will get your websites back and, and it just makes a world of a difference to them. Um, and at that point, they, they don't care about any of the money they spent for you. They, they <laughs> love the, love the product and, and love the experience. What were some of the hard points? Oh, geez. Um, the first five clients, six clients, we, I uh, didn't charge them at all. We had, it was the hardest time getting clients on board our platform. Um, at that point, Jack and I had almost no industry experience other than the mm-hmm. internships and co-ops we did. Um, so running a company, hiring our first employee, having interns, trying to build a culture uh, while building a product around an industry that was cash strapped and uh, an industry that wasn't just when I say industry of small businesses. So inside of small businesses, you have landscapers, you have barbers, you have boxing gyms, you have any number of things. And each one of them has their own specific requirement. So working with each one of these people and trying to, to build it out. And we've had some days that, um, God, we, we, we would provide the product to the website and all the ad stuff to the client. And they'd say, Hey, this isn't it at all. Like you guys really screwed up. Like this is not right. And we would have to go back through and fix it. And so those are some of the low points. Um, not getting contracts. Mm. Um, going, I think we went like six months without having a single customer and being like crap. Like I should be working at, at Capital One right now. <laughs> mm. Like looking back on it and being like, oh crap. Like I, I picked the wrong decision. Like this is setting me back in my career. I'm not learning enough. Like, what am I learning the wrong thing? Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's, I mean, you have to go home with a smile on your face and you have to be confident that what you're doing is, I mean, A, we're helping people. We're trying to help people uh, and B, you know, we have mentors and, and they're helping us along the way, but it, it's a constant struggle of being like, oh God, like we're two college students trying to take down web giants like Wix and Squarespace and these other companies, like, how do we do this? Like, this is an uphill battle from the beginning. When, when you were in that, that point, when you were not sure if this was the right decision, is there anything that with you, what you would know now you would say to yourself to kind of reassure that old version of yourself? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't have it any other way at this point. I think that it, uh, it, even coming out of college, I would push, I push people to this day. I even actually audit. Uh, I had a, a great conversation with him. He pulled me aside, uh, right before he started. Um, he was doing his, his previous venture at the time. Um, and right before he started Lula, he pulled me aside. He said, Cameron, should I join Microsoft? Cause he had a Microsoft offer at that point. Wow. And he's, he said, should I continue doing what I'm doing now or should I, I go work at Microsoft? I said, like, I can't, can't tell you one way or another, but 
I think that you should continue down the route that you're doing. At, at this time, he was a grad student uh, getting his master's at, at Drexel. And I, I think I, I recommended he stay uh, working at his current company at that time that he was building out. He had a ton of interns and a ton of uh, employees for it. And that one ended up not working out, but now he's going stronger than ever at Lula. And I, I wish him the best of luck there. And I still talk to him on a, a monthly basis or something like that. Um, but I think that it empowers you to be creative with what you're given. And you have to research and learn and building all these other qualities that, that you otherwise wouldn't get as specifically in this case as a software engineer at a large company. You're not going to learn how to interact with employees that are you're, you're telling them and teaching them how to do things your way and how, how to do things the company's way. Um, that's invaluable. And even what I do today, I, I try to interact with my coworkers uh, with a similar um, I don't I don't think the word's prowess, but but it's it's interacting you learn to interact with employees as a manager in a way that as co workers you can't interact. You mm. can't tell them what to do. You you learn that if you say certain things. Like I used to go to meetings with my co founder Jack and our one employee and Natalie, she was great, and we would go into the meeting and tell her what to do because we thought that this was just the way to do it. We didn't have any other experience. <laughs> and that is not the way to do it at all. Like you, you, you don't go into there and you don't tell people what to do. And sure, some companies do it, but I don't think it's the proper or effective way to communicate with people. Um, and I think that's the same way, whether you're they're your employee or they're a coworker, you go into it um, trying to solve a problem. So you, you, mm. you address the problem and then you have a conversation about the solution, whether you've come to a conclusion or not. Um, it's very important to come to it and, and get feedback from everyone at the table. So it, it's like skills like that, that you don't experience as a coworker. There are experiences that you have as a manager or meeting people or interacting with your clients, um, filling out requirements, there's just a number of things that you don't get experience with um, when you're, you're not running a business and you're not trying to do everything at once. And on top of that, whether it's successful or not, um, it's not even up to you to say, but I think that in the eyes of many people, it is noble and you're learning these skills that, that they want on their team, whether you're a manager or an individual contributor. Um, so I think it's very powerful and very, very helpful in the long run to, to start your own business and, and do your own thing. Did, um, did that teach you a lot about ego and, and yeah. how relating to other people? Yeah, very much so. And there, there's an ego in um, you being a manager or you being an individual contributor. There's an ego around you and other companies that you work with. Um, I, I don't even know how to pinpoint it, but it's, it's something you learn over time. And I don't think it probably took me a whole year to kind of grasp the knowledge of ego. Like I, I would learn it from the sense of the manager as an individual contributor. And then a couple months down the road, I'm like, Oh crap. Like there's, I could have an ego towards my clients. I could have an ego towards competitors. And it's something you, you have to learn to deal with. Otherwise you're not going to be successful. And I think it's just exacerbated when you, you run your own company. 
and and you've had uh you had two companies you had um was it crystal uh, fruit crystal, crystal fruit was the first one yeah 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 it's crystal it was like it's crystal something uh crystal yep. and uh vitrous yep yep uh so the first one was while i was in college my uh close friend growing up john um i had dinner with him two months ago but he came to me he said hey I've been doing all these websites and I physically can't do them. Like I need help. And so I stepped in and I was like, Hey, I got, of course I'll help. And it, at the time it was mostly just a uh, small, or no, it was, it was individual websites. So it was like people that uh, like yourself, um, not so much website designers, but designers in general that needed a really beautiful website. They were like, pottery designers or something like that mm. and they just needed a beautiful website and so john was a phenomenal designer and uh, i had no right doing any of that um <laughs> but he brought me on board and I, I knew how to build websites and so i structurally build them and john would go in and design them and so we were doing that for a lot of these individual projects and then we started building a business around it trying to we thought hey can we be like a VC, but from the ground up in a sense mm. that, hey, can we build out websites for these different businesses? They don't have a lot of money. They'll give us like $1,000 up front, but we'll get stock in the business. So we'll get like a, a quarter percent or something like that. Um, and that was a path that we tried going down. So we started working with these companies. Um, and actually, the last one we worked with was Vitrus, which was the company that we uh, that I ended up working for for two years. Uh, so we built them their initial MVP because we didn't just design websites. We built the whole API architecture and database and all that. And so we wow. built out this Vitrus at the time was a phone repair uh, management software tool. So you would manage wow. your employee or not employee. You could manage your employees, your time. Um, the customers that they came in, there was a whole intake form for when you were getting your phone repaired, what phone it was, how it was destroyed and things like that. And it would just come up with a price. And so that was the, the initial version of the website, uh, the, the product Vitrus. Um, but over the years, Apple has started cracking down on that phone repairs, a dying business um, from our view. And so we pivoted to doing general marketing Um on these uh, uh, on these websites, and so that's kind of how that all formed and, and, and ended up uh, with me joining Vitrus full time. Does this have to do with the the Temple Entrepreneurship Competition Vitrus Wireless that you did your senior year? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, we there was at Temple. There's a beer on Boss Bowl, so that's their entrepreneurship competition. It's actually. At the time, it was the most lucrative college entrepreneurship competition in the country. And so we had entered it twice. And my co-founder, Jack, would actually, he's going to laugh at me when I, I give this, uh, this, this experience. But the first time we had done it, I was way more involved uh, in the product and building it out. And I went to the competition. Jack spoke. And uh, it was it was kind of a um, it was his first time speaking in front of everyone. I had a pitch competition like that. There were hundreds of people in the crowd, 
and it didn't didn't go so well we came in fourth place we got like a thousand dollars or something like that fourth place out of fourth out of i mean so there were hundreds of applicants and and the top four (laughs) don't cut yourself short (laughs) (laughs) and so the top four gave presentations in front of all these people and there are investors in the crowd vcs in the crowd big people wow and uh, that didn't go so great. We came in fourth place. And then the next year we reapplied. And that year I actually wasn't so involved. Um, <laughs> and I, while he was giving the pitch at the at the Bureau and Boss Bowl, I, I don't remember, it was probably 2017, I was interviewing at Capital One in Virginia. And, wow. Yeah. And so I said, Jack, like, you come in first place, like, I'll come join you. But otherwise, I, I'm going to take this offer at Capital One. And he ended up coming oh. in first place. Yeah. And so I think I can't remember if it was twenty or forty thousand dollars we won. And that was kind of the the groundwork for, for everything else we did. Wow. Now I can understand when you said, Oh, we got fourth out of hundreds that yeah, like yeah. <laughs> it's a difference, like between it's a, it's a, it's a 20th less than first place. Yeah, because I, I if I um uh if I was running a race and I got fourth out of hundreds, I'd be like, I'm fine. Yeah, <laughs> very different thing. Very, but that that's very. so interesting. So um and uh this time frame for you was um it was after after college and yeah, so you're 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 at Vitrus and you said you were there for two years. You're wearing a Vitrus sweatshirt. And, I am, yeah. <laughs> and so what was this time frame between you having that that job interview, him winning the first place and where you are now? So like what happened in that time frame? Yeah, so I was doing the interviews right after this was 2017, March. Um, and at that point, I had an internship lined up at Amazon. And so I was interviewing Jack gave the presentation. I ended up getting the job offer from Capital One and eventually rejecting it to, to go work at Vitrus. Uh, I, I interned at Amazon in Seattle and then traveled abroad for three months. And then come January 2018 is when I, I started full-time at Vitrus and then for for no money. And <laughs> for the first, uh, first six months, I... Uh, we didn't have any customers. It was pretty bleak actually. And Jack was still working or going to school at that point. And eventually it started picking up traction. Um, and then two years down the road, COVID hit and we had the hardest time. Actually, we, we hired our first employee, uh, Natalie, the month before COVID hit. So it was probably the worst possible time. And we could have, we could have hired someone. And luckily, we were able to keep her on the books. Um, Jack and I took pay cuts, and we just had a hard time uh, getting any new clients. And at that time, our model was a lot of upfront cash for the website. They'd pay to build it out on our software, and then we had a recurring $30 a month charge. And so this $30 a month charge was just for the hosting and general updates and security bug fixes, performance updates, and things like that, that we, we monitor and keep up to date. Um, and so our, our model was to get three or four big contracts in per month. 
get the money in, pay ourselves. And then eventually a year or two down the road, uh, we would we would have enough sustained uh, monthly cash flow from the, the $30 month fee to uh, sustain us. And then we could we could kind of while doing this uh, during the two years, we, we would reach out to agencies, try to get them to use our platform to then provide to their their clients. And so our, our software was very easy to use. We actually outsourced all the development to um, I think it was Vietnam at the time. And mm -hmm. Um, we had some designers in the U.S. actually too, and the great part of it was the tool so easy. Um, a lot of the websites looked the same, but they looked the same because we had a method to um, measure and optimize the flow as the, as the customer interacted with the page. Um, so some of our feedback was, hey, all the websites kind of look the same that you do, um, and they don't all look the same, but... To, to someone if they, they click the wrong websites or, or look at it in a certain way, they might think that way. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we really optimized the way that we built these websites to um, get the customer in, get them to use a contact form or interact with the call button or, or something else. Um, that way we could get their information and then process them and they could become a customer. Um, so we had it down to kind of a science there. Yeah. And as somebody that literally just did this last night, uh, I, I went onto the site. I uh, It asked me who I was. It asked me about my business. It asked me about my website. Um, it asked me what kind of tone I would want to set for the site. And then it asked me a lot about um, like social media stuff that I use. And then within like a couple seconds, it had this site ready for me with uh, an API map, interactive map of my uh, where my apartment was <laughs> and yeah. all these different things, these, these suggestions for, hey, maybe you should have a testimonial here, all this kind of stuff. It was incredibly impressive just from de a development standpoint of being able to have that input and then have this thing created in such a short amount of time. I, I was... I was so excited to talk to you, even just because of that. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, so that was that was one of our, we, at one point, we were really trying to push different um, initiatives to bring on new leads. And that was a quick one where it's like, hey, we'll have this AI website builder and put in all this information. We'll create uh, a custom um, template around your specific industry. So we, we did a scraping of, of geez, hundreds of thousands of different websites in specific industries to try to get the headlines that they used and try to optimize it for that. And that all kind of goes into the, the processing of what you, uh, that form that you went through and, and eventually created the website for you. Yeah. And, and then uh, from, from that point in your life, um, I, I, what I'm guessing is you're, you're doing both. You have your, uh, your new job that you just started and you have uh, your commitment to Vitrus. So uh, what, is, what is that like for you? Uh, how is that to, to be juggling both? Because I'm, I'm kind of used to, to juggling two things at once and it's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's really difficult. So I think most of my experience doing that was when I was working at, when I interned at Amazon, I did a lot of work at Vitrus on the side. Nowadays, I don't do a whole lot of stuff it would just be maintenance because we do currently have a geez it's probably it's still over 100 small businesses on our platform we can't tell wow. them to to go away and so we keep this maintained for them and so um on a day-to-day -day basis i have to do nothing um every now and then on the weekend i'll have to 
update their their security certs or uh, if there's a bug thing, I'll just fix it for them. Um, but we we wanted to stay true to our roots and make sure we kept um, working with these small businesses to make sure that their needs are met. Um, and for for a long time, while we Jack and I have our own Jackworks elsewhere, and I I work at GoPuff, we have uh, our our one employee that was handling a lot of our client requests. Yeah, got it. And and what is it like to um uh, work at, at your, your new job and new step yeah. in your life. No, GoPuff is uh, faster, faster pace than, than anything I could have ever asked for. So <laughs> stepping, stepping out of, out of Vitrus, I wanted to go into a place where I had a lot of say. Uh, I was fast paced startup environment. Cause I think that's where I thrive in. Um, I'm when I, whenever I go to, to interview, I think my pitch is, Hey, you know, I, I have experience the whole nine yards of the industry of software development. I've started my own business and I've worked at Amazon. Amazon's arguably the best tech company, software company in the world. Um, and so I know the whole bandwidth. And on top of that, now I'm working at GoPuff, which is arguably uh, the fastest growing startup in the world. And so I, and previous to that, I even worked at, at a mid-sized company. So I've experienced the whole nine yards. Um, I know what companies need at certain aspects of the development process when you're a startup. It's way more scrappy. And even at, at GoPuff, it's scrappy. Um, and you have to cut corners in some places, um, but you also don't want to, to interfere with the structural integrity of, of the software development process and, and making sure that you're, you're able to build software that, that can be used and updated tomorrow and, and a year from now. And so I'm on, I'm on the order and cart fulfillment team and so that in itself is is revolutionary technology we're doing some really great things um what i do is essentially as part of the fulfillment process order has to go out to 50 different teams so you can think of we have our warehouses where we do the fulfillment we have the delivery drivers um all the way to post delivery uh tips and and comments and feedback uh, and even looking at your order history. These are all things along the way. And we're essentially the middle layer to communicate with these other teams uh, that require the data. And so you do some really, really neat stuff and we're building out um, a world-class software that that is is gonna scale to, to, to millions and billions of people. Um, we since working at GoPuff, we're now international. Um, we're in London, wow. Paris, and I think it's Paris, France, and Spain. Um, after acquiring two companies, uh, we've acquired five or six companies since I've joined, all in seven months. Uh, we've doubled the engineering team, and we're looking to double it again, I think, by the end of next year. Uh, so it's it's really a wild culture, wild one of the fastest uh, development processes I've ever been part of. And it's just some really, really great people. So. Does that get overwhelming? Oh, it's, it's extremely overwhelming, but I, I think that's <laughs> part of the fun. <laughs> so we, 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 I, it's just specific challenges in, in the field that, that you won't get anywhere else. Um, and they're unique. And luckily I work with a ton of smart people and, and, um, my input's heard, and I, I think it's just a great environment. Um, 
so you get to work with i'm i'm guessing uh there's um uh engineering development teams there's probably user experience designers there's qa uh user testing so what's it like to 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 work on that team and and have all of these different people who specialize in all these things just like trying to make it as good as possible yeah it's really uh that's something that you don't get in such a small startup like what i was building so we have as part of our app team other ux people that specifically work with the app team to build out the designs and I'm on a specific team that's backend focused. So backend being APIs and data storage. And so we handle all the data and the interactions between all the, the front end teams. And so we don't actually interface with anyone on UX, but they'll come to these other teams, speak with them, tell them the vision and software implements it. And so uh, that eventually might come down downstream to us in that they need specific information about an order or something like that. And so we have to build that out for them. Uh, but we, as a team, have to build it out holistically, make sure it's not just a one-time thing. We can reuse it on this team, this team, or the other team. Uh, we have a product manager. And the product manager, they set the vision for uh, what the company looks like today, tomorrow, a year from now, five years from now. And so, like, do we want to do X, Y, and Z? And uh, they they steer the vision of what engineers then design and build the systems of. Mm. Uh, and then on top of that, we do have the, the QA department that that handles a lot of uh, specific use cases that can't be tested automatically. And, and our, our goal is to automate all these tests, but you can think of GoPuff as we, we handle the warehouses ourselves. We handle the delivery process ourselves. We we're vertically integrated. And so as part of all this, certain things and, and at the speed that we're developing certain things aren't easy to test. It's not easy mm. to test certain things in, in, the fulfillment process and so that's where a lot of qa comes into play and we're we're making leaps and strides to, to automate everything yeah and something that I, I wanted to ask you specifically was as a um like in in the developer engineer space i i think it's really really important for me to when i'm working with developers who are way more advanced than what I do in in uh, currently in Webflow, um, I try to just be as as uh, I don't know, just open and uh, receptive to anything that any information that I need to check in with them. I just tr- I'm I'm really trying to be the best designer for developers yeah. <laughs> so that that they like me <laughs> and yeah. uh, and so. Um, when, when you've had these interactions, what kind of things do you, are just like so helpful or, or, uh, uh, make things a lot easier between the designer developer? Cause some things can get lost. Some things can be miscommunicated. What, what works? <laughs> that's, yeah, no, that's a, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> um, and I think if I had the full answer to that, I'd probably be a millionaire, but <laughs> I would say it's it's really important to have all all the spe- specs or the specific aspects of what you're asking for all laid out all at once. Um, it's when the iterations happen and things get lost in between. Um, 
diagrams are obviously very helpful. And I think it, it, for me, specifically working at Vitrus, where we are our QA and our UX, where typically our customers, and they tell us what it, they want it to look like. Um, it's if you have the, the ability and to, to bounce back and forth as much as possible, that way there's at the end of the day, like after uh, you'll probably have a timeline at the end of the timeline, you, you don't want to say, Oh crap, like this isn't at all what I, I had in mind. So, so coming back and forth and, and making sure uh, as the developer does build things out, he shares them and things are addressed quickly. I think that um, having just like dipping my toe a little bit in, into um, development with, with Webflow and, and custom code and all this kind of stuff um, and, and developing my own designs um, so that when I do have questions in the design phase, I can literally ask myself, hey, is this possible? What does this look like on mobile? All of these different questions. I think that that has made me a little bit more um, open and uh, uh easier to put yourself in somebody else's shoes a little bit and then you can kind of understand functions that you don't know like how to do yourself but the idea that hey I can kind of get myself around like is this thing even possible and stuff like that so that's that's definitely helpful to me at least like trying to put yourself in their shoes as much as possible to to be able to be a good coworker. <laughs> definitely I agree so um like talking through your whole story talking up to to where you are now um if sometimes people listen to this who are younger or starting out or they're thinking about like changing careers or anything like that and so these are kind of fun to listen to because you can actually like understand for two hours what what somebody's life is like who hey maybe you're like oh i I, I would do anything to uh live his life or i would do anything to to do that um these people might be at different points in your your story um so do you think that you have any advice over over the time that you kind of wish somebody could give to you that you wish you could give to other people that's a good question i i mean i think i I scattered all my bits of knowledge throughout this, (laughs) this whole uh talk but I think at the end of the day, it's, it, uh, yeah, depending on where you are along the way, there's, there's certain things you don't need to do anything ever at a certain specific point. But um, I think there's bits in this talk that um, can really help at that specific moment. So I don't think there's one holistic thing that I can say across the whole experience, but, but I think you need to try different things out and get to know what you like and what you're good at and then trying to mesh the two together to the best version of yourself you can um, whether that's in business or life or or anywhere in between yeah it sounds a little bit like um with what you do make sure that you like it and that you're willing to put the effort into to really learn it right no i agree (laughs) Well, this has been really, really fun to actually get to know you. I, I knew little bits and pieces about you from talking to you or, or looking at stuff online, but it, it was really fun to actually like sit down and, and chat for two hours. <laughs> yeah, no, th- thanks for having me on, Emily. It was, it's been a pleasure. 
Awesome. Well, uh, what I what I do at the at the end, um, every time if people listen to the end and they're really interested in you and they really want to reach out or something like that, this is where uh, we say like uh, uh, who I am, uh, um, my my title again if people forgot <laughs> and then yeah. where that they can find you so some people like to look at people on instagram some people will find you on all these other places so it's where they can find you and stuff like that so uh i'll start with me and then we'll end with you and then we'll wrap up the podcast does that sound like a good plan perfect perfect okay Alrighty. hi <laughs> my name is emily Giordano, and i am a uh a web designer Webflow developer and UX person, um, and yeah, that I I do all of that. <laughs> I I love making websites. Uh, uh, right now, I'm starting a uh, course in uh, marketplaces, which is really cool. Learning about Zapier and uh, Airtable and all that kind of stuff. So uh, in a few months, I'll be able to also do that. So that's exciting. Um, but but yeah, if you want to reach out to me, you want to be friends, want to come on the podcast anything you can find me at uh emily e-m-i-o-y at greatdesignlead.com great design lead is my website it's also my instagram it's also the youtube channel where i do youtube reaction videos uh for fun and i occasionally get to meet the people that made the website which is really cool because they're like all over the place um and uh and yeah you could listen to the the podcast again um, but that, that's pretty much enough about me. Uh, and we'll we'll finish up with uh, Cameron and then we'll head out of here. Yeah, the, those reaction videos are actually really fun to watch. <laughs> I, I've seen a couple of them now. Oh, thank uh, and you. So, no, of course. And so I'm, I'm Cameron Spencer. I'm a software engineer currently at GoPuff. I love entrepreneurship, software architecting and design. Uh, and I really like helping the entrepreneurship entrepreneurship community and so if anyone's out there and interested you can find me on linkedin under cameron spencer i'm the bollywood star (laughs) (laughs) um that's that's probably the best place to reach me perfect and i'll put all of that in the podcast description so people can just click on it and and head over there but this has been really fun thanks for giving me two hours of your sunday (laughs) and of course i guess this is just goodbye until next time Exactly. (laughs) I'll, I'll talk to you soon then, Emily.